Well, good evening. It's uh, good to be back with you. I've had uh, lots of people asking me if I'd had an afternoon nap. Um, I didn't, uh, but I hope I have enough energy so that I don't give you an early evening nap uh, tonight. Um, However, we'll see. I'd like to read uh, from uh, Luke's Gospel, the 14th chapter, uh, from uh, verse 25 to the end of the chapter at verse 35. So Luke chapter 14, uh, from verse 25 to 35. I'm reading in the ESV, um, and the page number I have is 874. Uh, Let me read these very well-known, very famous words of uh, uh, Jesus. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple." For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen. Let's uh, let's pray together. God, our Father, Uh, We thank you for your word that is trustworthy and true. As we open it this evening, we ask that you would lodge your word in our minds and hearts, that it may bear much fruit for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to uh, begin uh, with an example And uh, I want you to imagine uh, that you're going to buy a car, okay? We're going to buy a car. And uh, since Brexit has happened this week, we'll make make it a German car uh, you're going to buy, an expensive German car. We'll make it a BMW, okay? And you see this advert in the car showroom. Uh, a BMW 5 Series. That's a nice car. Um, and we'll say it's new and it will only cost you £10,000. 
Now, if you know anything about cars, you will know you're not going to get a BMW 5 Series for £10,000. But they're advertising at £10,000, and so you think this could be a great deal. Um, so you go in and you speak to the uh, man behind the counter who comes out and he chats to you and says, oh, it's a great deal, sir. This is amazing. What an amazing car this is. And you say, wow, I think it's a great price. I think, I, I think I'm going to have this car. £10,000, I'm, I'm really encouraged. Well, he said, well, there's a couple of wee things. We just got to check, you know, before you sign on the dotted line. But one of them is, um, do you want wheels with this car? Oh, well, I quite like some wheels. I quite like four wheels, actually. So, yeah, well, the four wheels, they, they're, they're an extra. You know, that will cost you uh, another £10,000. Okay, okay, well, okay. Uh, and will you want an engine with this car? Uh, but this time you may be beginning to have some doubts about this deal. But he says, yeah, well, it's £20,000 for the engine. And a steering wheel? Do you want, do you want one of those? Uh, well, but by this time you, you may be having second thoughts about the purchase. Because without these things, in what sense can we call it a car? It may be a chassis, a frame, but surely not a car. My point is this, that some things are intrinsic, they are essential, they are indispensable. They're not luxuries, they're not optional extras, they're not add-ons, your sat-nav or your air conditioning. They are of the essence of the thing. Without the engine or the wheels or the steering wheel, you know, it's not really a car. And in these verses that I want us to look at tonight... Jesus is speaking about the essentials of Christian discipleship. He says that without these elements, it's simply not possible to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. And you perhaps would notice that on three occasions here in these verses, he states that without these key ingredients, a person simply, he says this, cannot be my disciple. Verse 26, verse 27, verse 33. Without these essential components, it is impossible to be a genuine disciple, follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the language is very stark and very strong. It's the same words that we, for example, find in John chapter 3 where Jesus tells Nicodemus that unless he is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In other words, these are matters of the greatest importance if we're thinking about what it means to truly follow the Lord Jesus. And in Luke 14, Jesus speaks of these things in a section of the gospel. He's moving towards Jerusalem. And he's a man with a mission. He's on this journey uh, to the cross. And on this journey, it seems that Jesus, as he has traveled, has picked up quite a following. As he's preached and taught as he has healed, as he has driven out demons, as he has eaten with tax collectors and sinners, as he has challenged the religious authorities of the day, 
this large crowd has been attracted to him and has attached itself to him as he moves from village to village and town to town. It says in verse 25, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them. So it appears that Jesus is not impressed by the great numbers of would-be followers. And in fact, these verse, in these verses, he appears to go out of the way to put people off. His words are like a, a bucket of cold water on their enthusiasm. He explains to the crowd just what it really means to follow after him. And he confronts them and he challenges them in a most powerful and dramatic way. He says, if you're really going to follow me, then you really need to know what's involved. You need to know what the demands of such a path are going to be. The good news I bring is offered freely to all. But that same gospel will call from you every last ounce of commitment. And so in these verses, Jesus, it seems to me, highlights three essential ingredients of authentic Christian discipleship. Without them, we cannot be his followers. And I want us to look at each in turn this evening. And the first I think we find, and you see it there in verse 26, and it is this, that the Christian disciple must love Jesus first. The Christian disciple must love Jesus first. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, many of you will be aware that in most uh, traditional cultures, uh, family is everything. It's those key family relationships that are uh, most significant and most important in life. They're the strongest bonds imaginable. Uh, certainly, they were in the society of which Jesus was part. And yet, Jesus talks here of hating father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters. So, this is, this is shocking uh, language. It's shocking language even to our ears. What must it have been like to Jesus' first hearers? Is Jesus really saying that it's a condition of discipleship that we hate our families? In fact, he goes beyond that to talk of hating even one's own life. What is he driving at? What is he saying here? Now, I do not think for a moment that Jesus is encouraging his followers to break, for example, the fifth commandment. The Scriptures tell us that children are to honor their parents, that, that husbands are to love their wives, that fathers are to care for their children. And I don't think Jesus is putting aside any of that teaching here. So, what is he saying? Well, Jesus' teaching here is not about animosity. It's about priority. I think Jesus is using here the language of contrast. He is portraying a shocking contrast between love and hate. Those most intimate and loving of family relationships are to be considered like hate in comparison to the love that we're to have for Jesus. It's not just that we're to love Jesus a little more than our closest family. 
It's that we're to love him a whole lot more. Our love for Jesus is to be so great that our affection and devotion for others is like hatred in comparison. Jesus is to be supreme in our affections. He is to be preeminent in all things. Our love for him is to be all-consuming. It is to put all other loves in the shade. And friends, this is the radical nature of Christian discipleship. We are to brook no rival to Jesus in this world. I can think over the years of a, of a number of people I have known who have been disowned and disinherited by their families because of their Christian faith and because of their love for Jesus. Their whole lives transformed, their priorities changed, their outlook on life radically altered. And yet that change brought rejection. That was not easy for them to bear. But they bore it because they had come to love Jesus. At the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is that we can say and mean, I love Jesus Christ. I remember some years ago reading uh, the American preacher John Piper uh, telling or writing of an experience he had back in his days in seminary. This is what he wrote. He said, a group of us were huddled around a man called James Morgan, a young theology teacher who was saying something about the engagement of Christians in social justice. I don't remember what I said, but he looked me right in the eye and said, John, I love Jesus Christ. It was like a thunderclap in my heart. Strong, intelligent, mature, socially engaged man had just said out loud in front of half a dozen men, I love Jesus Christ. He was not preaching. He was not pronouncing on any issue. He was not singing in church. He was not trying to get a job. He was not being recorded. He was telling me that he loved Jesus. The echo of that thunderclap, says Piper, is still sounding in my heart. That was 40 years ago. There are a thousand things I don't remember about those days in seminary, but that afternoon remains unforgettable. And all he said was, John, I love Jesus Christ. James Morgan died a year later of stomach cancer, leaving a wife and four small children. His chief legacy in my life was one statement on an afternoon in Pasadena, I love Jesus Christ. Friends, there is perhaps more to discipleship than loving Jesus. But friends, there is not less. The bare minimum is that we love Jesus. And it's to be a love of such strength and devotion that every other human love and tie pales into insignificance. Jesus says, I, I must be your first love. It takes this kind of love to be a disciple of Jesus. In fact, Jesus says, without it, we cannot be his disciples. 
So the Christian disciple must love Jesus first. Secondly, the Christian disciple must then bear a cross. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. As I've said, Jesus was on a journey. That journey would bring him humiliation, shame, death. It was a journey that would leave him tortured and stripped bare, that would take him indeed to the cross. And to follow Jesus means that we must, in some sense, travel that way as well. We too must bear a cross. We cannot follow Jesus on the condition that he alone does all the dying. Thomas Kempis, the author of a classic medieval work of Christian devotion called The Imitation of Christ, wrote these words, Jesus hath now many lovers of his kingdom, but few bearers of his cross. He hath many that are desirous of consolation, but few of tribulation. All desire to rejoice with him, but few are willing to suffer for his sake. But friends, if we want to be Christian disciples, there are sacrifices that may have to be made. There will be a pain that will have to be accepted. There will be a price that has to be paid. Jesus made that very clear. And he urged his prospective disciples to weigh things up carefully. Now, we mustn't misunderstand what, he's, what Jesus is saying here. The cost of discipleship to which he refers is not a fee that is charged for the entrance ticket to heaven. We cannot purchase eternal life by deeds of religious devotion, no matter how heroic or noble or self-sacrificing. The cross that Jesus talks about here is simply the consequence of having our life and destiny linked to his. It's simply the consequence of being united to him by faith. That's what it means for us to bear a cross. It means death. No way of avoiding that. It's, it's not cool or sexy or attractive. Actually, it's ugly and brutal and painful. And many believers across the world this evening uh, know that only too well. In Jesus' day, the, the Romans crucified thousands of people. Many of Jesus' hearers would have been well acquainted with the, with the sight. Perhaps the man bruised and carrying his cross to his own execution. They may, may well have attended as sightseers, watching the nails being hammered in and witnessing the blood. And it's interesting how Paul, I think in particular, in, and the other New Testament writers, uses this death language to speak of the Christian life. Paul speaks of the Christian offering his or her body as a sacrifice on the altar of God's grace. Romans 12.1, he speaks of the cross of Christ by which the world has been crucified to him. Galatians 6.4, he talks of sharing in Christ's sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Philippians 3.10, the Christian life, the whole Christian life is to be shaped by the cross. Down through the years, theologians uh, have sought to distinguish the marks by which a true church can be recognized. And traditionally, these have been known as, as the true marks of the church. 
Classic Reformed theology has identified them as the true preaching of the gospel, the proper administration of the sacraments, and sometimes the right exercise of discipline. But is there not a case to be made for including a willingness to suffer and die for Christ as a mark of the true church? When Jesus speaks of cross-bearing, he's not speaking about carrying some burden through life. Cross-bearing means nothing less than giving one's whole life over to Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote, when Christ bids a man, he bids him come die. It would be nice if we could water the statement down, make it a little more palatable. But Jesus says, without picking up our cross and following after him, we can't be his disciples. And friends, the Christian life is not about traveling the path of least resistance. It's about being faithful to Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. It's about picking up our cross and following after him. We know in this life that genuine relationships never come cheap. You hold another person's hand. You promise to love them and to stick by them no matter what. Neither of you knows when you take such words on your lips what that vow may cost you. But cost you it will. Potentially the costs could be great. And in a way it's the same with Jesus. He didn't come to solicit customers. He called disciples to himself. He called them to be faithful to that commitment. The Christian disciple must love Jesus first. The Christian disciple must pick up their cross and follow him. And then thirdly here, the Christian disciple, you'll notice, must forsake all in verses 28, really through 35. And at the end here, Jesus uses two illustrations of people who count the cost before embarking on a project. And actually, they're really two pictures of the Christian life that we find in the Scriptures, a building and a battle. Verses 28 through 30, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he's enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Someone's going to engage in constructing a tower, uh, they'll sit down beforehand and evaluate whether or not they have the required resources. Uh, I remember in, in the village in which I grew up in Lanarkshire, there was a man who started to build a house. Um, most of the bricks he, would, he was using had allegedly been taken from various building sites in the county. However, he badly miscalculated what was needed, and the building remained for years and years and years with walls just a few feet high. And he was an absolute laughingstock in the community. Every time people saw that half-built kind of foundation and house, they just laughed. Or what king, says Jesus in verse 31, going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down, deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20. And if not, while the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. And picture there, 
king facing an enemy of vastly superior strength, he's got a big decision to make. If he calculates he doesn't have enough men to win the battle, he'll, he'll sue for peace rather than risk total defeat. What's Jesus' point? Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You see, being his disciple takes all that we have, a total commitment. It's not a hobby or a pastime. It's not something we can drift into without careful thought and consideration. We can't just hedge our bets. We have to be all in. And tragically, the Christian landscape of our land is littered, is it not, with the wreckage of derelict and half-built towers, of many who started but were not able to finish, who began the journey but did not have perseverance to stay the course, those who failed to count the cost. The writer to the Hebrews speaks of this in chapter 6 of his epistle. He talks of those who are unable to be brought back onto the path of consistent discipleship. And Jesus says here, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use, either for soil or the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Already in this gospel, Jesus has spoken about those whose hearts are like rocky ground with no depth. The gospel fails to take root, and so in times of testing, they simply drift away or fall away. They didn't reckon on the cross that had to be carried. They didn't count the cost of discipleship. And then, of course, there were those whose love for Jesus was choked and strangled and squeezed out by the cares and the pleasures and the worries of this life. G.C. Royal wrote, "'It costs something to be a true Christian.'" Let that never be forgotten. To be a mere nominal Christian and go to church is cheap and easy work. But to hear Christ's voice and follow Christ and believe in Christ and confess Christ requires much self-denial. It will cost us our sins and our self-righteousness and our ease and our worldliness. All must be given You see, Christian discipleship, according to Jesus, is all or nothing. It involves persistence and perseverance. It involves us not giving up or throwing in the towel. It means staying the course. It means we keep on keeping on. We must continue to love Jesus first. We must continue to carry our cross. We must continue to give all that we have. Now, let's be honest, that this, is, this, is, uh, this teaching of Jesus is absolutely terrifying. It's actually, it's very uncomfortable. It's scary stuff. And you can imagine that great crowd <coughs> that was following after him, you know, quickly dispersing, like, like snow off a dike, at hearing these demanding words of Jesus. Well, so much for them. What about us? What do you make of this teaching? I mean, how on earth can anyone be a disciple of Jesus? If these are the essential ingredients, if these are the key qualities, if these are the vital components of discipleship, 
But how is it possible for any one of us to be a disciple? How is it possible for us to love Jesus first before our families and even our own lives? How can we carry the cross that may well entail suffering, goodness, even death? How can we renounce everything for Jesus Christ? I mean, why would anyone in their right mind want to follow Jesus on these terms? Isn't it all a bit extreme, a bit fanatical? Well, yes, it is. It is extreme. It is radical. It it is disturbing. But friends, this is Christianity. Maybe why some are hesitant about giving themselves to Jesus Christ. And I suspect that those first disciples didn't fully understand what Jesus was speaking about until after his death and resurrection. They didn't really get it till later. It was only in the light of Calvary and the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit that the pieces began to fall into place. They had not simply to be instructed by Jesus. They had to be changed by Jesus. They had to be transformed by the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection. And friends, so must we. I preached one of my earliest sermons as a young man, well over 30 years ago now, on these very verses. And some time ago, I came across in a drawer the notes of that sermon. And I looked at them. It's always a sobering thing for a minister to do, to look at your old notes. Well, it was a young man's sermon. And it contained many exhortations to deeper commitment and sacrifice, but failed completely to touch on this issue of motivation. I mean, why should I love Jesus like this? And how can I love Jesus like this? It seems to me there's a sense in which we do not choose what we love, but always love that which seems desirable to us. We will all simply love ourselves or love the world or love sin unless we see and appreciate that Jesus Christ is better and altogether lovely. And that is what the Holy Spirit does in the life of the believer. He makes us taste and see that the Lord is good, that He is supremely beautiful. He causes us to desire Christ and to enjoy Him. He opens our eyes that we might see Jesus. Jonathan Edwards said this, is there anything which Christians can find in heaven on earth or earth so worthy to be the objects of their admiration and love, their earnest and longing desires, their hope and their rejoicing and their fervent zeal as those things that are held forth to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For friends, the jewel in the crown of Christianity It's not an idea, it's not a system, it's not a philosophy, it's not a program, it's not a thing. 
It's not even the gospel as such. It is Jesus Christ himself. And if we lose sight of him, we lose sight of everything that's important. Because Christianity is not a system of ethics or commands or demands. It's the good news of a crucified and risen Savior. It's the good news of a love that will not let you go. It's the good news of forgiveness and pardon for sinners like us. It's the good news of eternal life for all who put their faith in Jesus. And so, yes, discipleship has its essentials. There's no doubt about that. But those essentials flow out of hearts melted by the love of Jesus Christ and lives transformed by the gospel and the Holy Spirit. We mustn't lose sight of the fact that discipleship always begins not with us, but with Jesus. It begins with him and his call. It begins and it continues as we see him in all his grace and glory and are captivated by all his beauty and divine loveliness. He who began a good work in our lives will be faithful to complete it. Because ultimately, it depends not on us, but on him. Robert Murray McShane, in some famous words, wrote uh, to a friend with this, invite, with this advice, learn much of the Lord Jesus, and for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, Feel his all-seeing eye settled upon you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. I wonder, have you heard the loving voice of Christ in his gospel? Have you seen Jesus with the eye of faith? And have you really placed your life in his hands? There is nothing more important than that. Nothing. Pick up your cross and follow after him. For only he will take you to that new heavens and earth in which righteousness dwells and where glory endures forever. Let's pray. God, our Father, grant us grace and mercy that we may see Jesus, that we may love him who first loved us. Help us to put him first. Help us to pick up our cross each day and follow Jesus. Help us to hold nothing back to the one who held nothing back for us. We ask these things in his name and for your glory. Amen.